When news breaks, go beyond the headlines with the new MSNBC app. Get real-time analysis from live blogs to in-depth essays, video highlights from your favorite shows and hosts, and the latest updates on the 2024 election. Go beyond the what to understand the why. Download the app now at msnbc.com slash app. Tonight on The Readout. After our last hearing, President Trump tried to call a witness in our investigation. A witness you have not yet seen in these hearings. Liz Cheney drops a bombshell in the closing moments of today's January 6th hearing, alerting the DOJ to a fresh round of possible witness tampering by Donald Trump. Plus. What it was going to be was an armed revolution. I mean, people died that day. Law enforcement officers died this day. There was a gallows set up in front of the Capitol. This could have been the spark that started a new civil war. Gripping testimony about the Oath Keepers and its indicted leader, Stuart Rhodes, from a man who was once on the inside. That witness, Jason Von Tatnow, joins me tonight. But we begin tonight with Trump summoning the mob from the very outset of these public hearings. A memorable line from Liz Cheney laid out exactly what happened. President Trump summoned the mob, assembled the mob, and lit the flame of this attack. Today's hearing spelled out exactly how the mob was summoned that day, which, as with most things Donald Trump, can be traced back to a tweet. In this case, on December 19, 2020. As the committee showed, it's important to note what happened in the frantic final weeks of the Trump administration leading up to that tweet. Today's hearing filled in those blanks, focusing on everything that happened after December 14th, the critical date when the electors meet and the election is finally over. In fact, here's what Mitch McConnell said the very next morning. Yesterday, electors met in all 50 states. So as of this morning, our country has officially a president-elect and a vice president-elect. Many millions of us had hoped the presidential election would yield a different result. But our system of government has processes to determine who will be sworn in on January the 20th. The Electoral College has spoken. So today I want to congratulate President-elect Joe Biden. So did the former president follow the advice of his advisors? Because they were certainly sending a unified message. If your question is, did I believe he should concede the election at a point in time? Yes, I did. I conveyed to him that I uh, thought that it was time for him to acknowledge that uh, President Biden had uh, prevailed in the election. I believed at that point that the um, means for him to pursue uh, litigation um, uh, was probably closed. And you recall what his response, if any, was? He disagreed. What Trump did instead was to assemble a gathering of his inner circle four days later on December 18th. A mix of the usual motley crew of personal lawyers pushing fraud and a collection of White House and other lawyers telling Trump that what his band of misfits was pushing to do was nuts, including this claim from former White House counsel Pat Cipollone. To have the federal government seize voting machines, that's a terrible idea for the country. That's not how we do things in the United States. Uh, there's no legal authority to do that. And... There is a way to contest elections, you know, that 
It happens all the time. But the idea that the federal government could come in and seize election machines, you know, that that's I don't I don't understand why we even have to tell you why that's a bad idea. In the meeting, the former president watched up close as Cipollone and other lawyers batted down the increasingly ridiculous claims and legal arguments from people like Rudy Giuliani and Sidney Powell. The latter he actually considered naming as a special counsel to investigate voter fraud. I don't think any of these people were providing the president with good advice. And so I, I, I didn't understand how they had gotten in. I was asking, like, are you claiming the Democrats were working with Hugo Chavez, Venezuelans, and whomever else? The three of them were really sort of forcefully attacking me verbally. I think that it got to the point where the screaming was completely, completely out there. I'm going to categorically describe it as you guys are not tough enough. Or maybe I put it another way, you're a bunch of It was a meeting White House aide Cassidy Hutchinson later described as unhinged. So, of course, Trump doesn't listen to the rational lawyers or the fringe lawyers. Instead, he turned to a new plan, riling up his supporters with that 1.42 a.m. tweet on December 19th. Quote, big protest on D.C. on January 6th. Be there. It will be wild. He knows the rest of it is a lie. But what happened after that explosive invitation was that the planning and marketing of the rally for January 6th completely changed, as did the effort to sell the big event and his wording of his planned speech that day. And today we heard the inevitable conclusion, predictable in hindsight, from one of the many individuals who went into the January 6th, into January 6th, believing that he was following his leader, the former president. Stephen Ayers, an Ohio man who has pleaded guilty to disorderly conduct for his actions that day. During this review, we identified you entering the Capitol, as we see in this video. Mr. Ayers, why did you decide to come to Washington on January 6th? You know, uh, I was, you know, pretty hardcore into the social media, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, I followed, you know, President Trump, you know, on all of the websites. So why'd you decide to march to the Capitol? Uh, well, basically, uh, you know, the president, you know, got everybody riled up. Joining me now, Frank Figluzzi, former FBI Assistant Director for Counterintelligence and MSNBC National Security Analyst, and Matthew Dowd, political strategist and founder of Country Over Party. Thank you both for being here. Frank, you know, I thought this was another dynamic hearing. But what it boils down to, in my mind thus far, is that Trump had three options for staying president. Option number one, go the legal route that a lot of uh, candidates do who lose elections. You do lawsuits, you try to win. He lost all of those by December 14th. Option two, try to get the Department of Justice to play ball, to pretend that there was something wrong with the election so he could convince state legislatures to throw out their own electors willingly. That's option two. Option three feels like what we learned about today, which is Get the fake electors, just get pretend ones, get those electors somehow to Washington, give them to Mike Pence, and then use violence to make him, make him certify them. What did you make of the hearing today? Because just, just to throw one thing in there, before option three, in my reading of it, Donald Trump's goons assembled 
right? Like a bad Marvel movie. Kelly Meggs, who was the leader of the Oath Keepers, she uh, put a Facebook message on December 19th saying this. This week, I organized an alliance between Oath Keepers, um, Florida Three Percenters, and Proud Boys. We have decided to work together and shut this S down. Your thoughts? Yeah, I don't think anyone can claim anymore that there was a spontaneous riot that developed out of a peaceful rally uh, on January 6th. We're, we're done with that misperception. Uh, but you're on, you're on the money here, Joy, with regard to those three options. And what happened today was we were taken behind the scenes, as close as we may ever get, really, to kind of the, the thinking of Donald Trump. Because by behind the scenes, I mean we understand the chronology that got him to that option number three which is I got to appeal to the masses now because I've got nothing left here. And, you know, I, I can't take credit for this great description of that meeting in the White House with people just waltzing in and people asking, who who are you? You know, Pat Cipollone is sitting there with other official people. And here comes this ne'er-do-well cast that, that was described by Neil Kotyel, uh, Kotyel earlier today as the bar scene from Star Wars with, you know, Rudy Giuliani and Sidney Powell. And you can't, you won't see a more stark contrast between the rule of law and the rule of Trump. By the rule of Trump, I mean, if you can't get what you want, just get there by any means necessary. And so we saw then the next step is the tweet you know, that says, be there, it's going to be wild, right? And we also heard that White House call logs show two calls on January 5th with Steve Bannon. And what mm. does Steve Bannon do after call number one with the president? He gets on the air and he says, all hell's going to break loose tomorrow. So about as close as we're going to get to a smoking gun, not the smoking gun showing direct knowledge, but when you combine it with the Secret Service telling him, don't march down to the Capitol. And he still wants to. And he wants that march to the Capitol, that rally cry to be kept secret just among a few people because he says, I don't want to get in trouble with the National Park Service. Right. I'm not buying that. So where I come from, where, I, where I'm at with this now is there's clearly enough predication for DOJ to have opened a case if they have not. That includes Donald J. Trump's name mm -hmm. in the subject line of the case. Do we have a successful indictment, prosecution and conviction? I'm not there yet, but we've got a solid predication to open a case on the former president. Right. And Matthew, I mean, the, what, the, what Trump has in common with, you know, people like Stuart Rhodes, in addition to their sort of penchant for violence or interest in violence, is the sense of entitlement that we're that this it doesn't matter what the election said. It doesn't matter if we couldn't prove that there was any fraud. That doesn't matter. We're, we're, Trump is going to be president no matter what. Here's Stuart Rhodes. Now, this is him on December 12th. Um, and this is him giving a speech about what Donald Trump needs to do, meaning in his mind, use the Insurrection Act to, to stay president. And here he is, Stuart Rhodes. He needs to know from you that you are with him, that he does not do it now. While he is commander in chief, we're going to have to do it ourselves later in a much more desperate, much more bloody war. Let's get it on now while he is still the commander in chief. And not to use his stage name, his name is actually Elmer Rhodes, Elmer Stewart Rhodes, the guy who shot, shot his own eye out with a, a gun he dropped. Your thoughts, Matthew? Well, I'm, I'm going to pile on with what. Frank said and what you said, which is not only was this not a spontaneous rally at the Capitol, it was an insurrection, organized insurrection. That meeting that occurred, the Star Wars bar meeting that occurred, wasn't a spontaneous meeting. Donald Trump was like a mob boss who goes in and loses a bunch of money at a casino. And then he's mad 
that he lost a bunch of money at a casino. Then he wants to blow up the casino, right? This is what he, well, I'm going to blow up the casino. And then a number of people around him say, that's a bad idea. You shouldn't do that. And then he goes out and finds a bunch of cruel and craven and crazy people to say, that's a really good idea. Why don't you do that? That's what he did. The, Sidney Powell, Rudy Giuliani, and all those others that were in that crazy meeting were there because Donald Trump wanted them to tell him this is a good idea. And so you can't part of the I mean, as Frank knows, part of the law is you can't just keep acting this sort of willful knowledge. Of, oh, I got people to tell me. Well, he went out and searched for people to tell him crazy stuff to do. And then he went out and did it. And I think that's the fundamental problem. I I'm not a lawyer in this. I don't not not only do I think they have enough to open an investigation, I actually think they have plenty to indict him at this point in time, whether or not they can get a conviction. I actually think in opening a investigation and indicting him is in the best interest of our democracy at this point in time to have a case that goes to trial of Donald Trump for what he did in what happened at the Capitol. And, you know, and Frank, look, I'm not, I'm not a lawyer either. I just watch lawyers like you on TV, right? But I mean, but I think anyone who's watched like CSI like once can sort of put this together, that Donald Trump, at, by midnight, Rudy Giuliani is being escorted out of the White House by Mark Meadows, who would later gets in on the plot, but he's escorting him out to make sure he doesn't circle back to the West Wing, right? Then he, at 1.49, Donald Trump sends out this rage tweet after he had been told and had his other cuckoo plots like, you know, taking all of the voting machines knocked down. Then he sends this tweet. I want to know who he talked to between midnight and 149. I want to know who he spoke to that might have been able to assemble that mob and might have had contact with the Oath Keepers and the three percenters, et cetera, because Donald Trump ain't calling Kelly Meggs. Let me play three people who are potential people Donald Trump could have reached out to and what they said on January 5th. We will win this fight or America will step off into a thousand years of darkness. The members of Congress, those of you that don't have the moral fiber in your body, get some tonight because tomorrow we the people are going to be here and we want you to know that we will not stand for a lie. These degenerates in the deep state are going to give us what we want or we are going to shut this country down. It's 1776. 1776. 1776. There were people that were on the responses to Donald Trump calling for January 6th to be wild who were using the term red wedding. If you watch Game of Thrones, you know that means bloodshed. So there was obviously violent intent by people who were at the Capitol. Frank, if you were investigating this case, do you start by call which of those guys do you call first to try to find out who might have been on the phone with Donald Trump from midnight to 149 a.m.? You've got to, well, so you've got to connect those dots as close to the president as possible, right? What did he know? We all, we all tend to agree here that, look, he should have known many people, including his own attorney general, his own White House counsel, his own daughter, were telling him that you, you don't have it here. If the fraud's not there, we're done, right? So now who's convincing him about a potential violent plot and, and why does he say it's going to be wild? Why does he know he has to march people by the thousands to the Capitol? So I'd, I'd start approaching many of the people, of course, who the committee 
Steve's already got a hold of, but I'm more interested in people who don't want to talk. You remember Steve Bannon, his trial starts next week for contempt. He's not, he's not talking. Um, he claims he wants to volunteer to cooperate with the committee. Don't buy that for a second. That's going to be a circus. So Mark Meadows is critical here. Mark Meadows has to, has to tell what he knows. Um, and then you got to have, and I think it's happening, Joy. You got to have Proud Boys leaders yep. and Oath Keepers leaders flipping. We've got dozen of those at least on both sides charged with seditious conspiracy. They're going to prison for 20 years to life. Somebody's going to flip about who knew that Trump was organizing this or his associates. I think that's where the case is going to going to rest. Yeah, somebody needs to talk. Don't you you're going to go to jail for life for Donald Trump or are you going to try to get a better deal by maybe telling on somebody? Frank Fickluzzi, Matthew Dowd, thank you both very much. Up next on the readout, Trump's criminal culpability as he plotted to keep his presidency by force when all other options failed. The readout continues after this. Today and every day, Planned Parenthood is committed to ensuring that everyone has the information and resources they need to make their own decisions about their bodies, including abortion care. Lawmakers who oppose abortion are attacking Planned Parenthood, which means affordable, high-quality, basic health care for more than 2 million people is at stake. The right to control our bodies and get the health care we need has been stolen from us. And now, politicians in nearly every state have introduced bills that would block people from getting the sexual and reproductive care they need. Planned Parenthood believes everyone deserves health care. It's a human right. That's why they fight every day to push for common-sense policies that protect our right to control our own bodies and against policies that interfere with decisions between patients and their doctor. Planned Parenthood needs your support now more than ever. With supporters like you, we can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future. That's PlannedParenthood.org future. President Trump is a 76-year-old man. He is not an impressionable child. Just like everyone else in our country, he is responsible for his own actions and his own choices. As our investigation has shown, Donald Trump had access to more detailed and specific information showing that the election was not actually stolen than almost any other American. And he was told this over and over again. No rational or sane man in his position could disregard that information and reach the opposite conclusion. Wow, well, okay, gangster lady. Today, the committee laid out in great detail how Donald Trump knew exactly what he was doing. On December 18th, he sought counsel with Mike Flynn, Rudy Giuliani, and Sidney Powell, people who were peddling his big lie, even though they knew it was a big lie. One of the other things that's been reported that was said during this meeting was that President Trump told White House lawyers, Mr. Hirschman and Mr. Cipollone, that they weren't offering him any solutions, but Ms. Powell and others were. So why not try uh, what Ms. Powell and others were proposing? Do you remember anything along those lines being said by President Trump? I do. That sounds right. Trump rewarded that bad behavior by offering Powell a job as a special counsel with top-level security clearance when his White House lawyers, including Pat Cipollone and Eric Hirschman, advised against that because Powell was pushing unhinged conspiracy theories that would get him into legal trouble. Trump denigrated them. Shortly before we left and it totally blew up was when uh, Cipollone and or Hirschman and whoever the other young man was said, 
you can name her whatever you want to name her, and no one's going to pay any attention to it. How did he respond? How did the president respond to that? Uh, something like, you see what I deal with, I deal with this all the time. From December 14th through January 6th, Trump continued to surround himself with coup sympathizers, including 10 congressional Republicans who were tasked with deploying his plan on January 6th. On December 21st, Trump spearheaded a meeting with those members to make sure they were all on the same page. We've asked witnesses what happened during the December 21st meeting. And we've learned that part of the discussion centered on the role of the vice president during the counting of the electoral votes. These members of Congress were discussing what would later be known as the Eastman theory. The committee provided evidence that as the rally date inched closer, Trump had in fact coordinated with rally organizers about having his supporters march to the Capitol. The organizer says, you know, this stays between us. We're having a second stage at the Supreme Court again after the ellipse. POTUS is going to have us march there slash the Capitol. POTUS is going to just call for it, quote, unexpectedly. On the eve of January 6th, the positively jubilant Trump talked about pressuring rhinos and joining the crowd, all while fully comprehending the volatility of the situation. He did look to the staff and ask for um, ideas of how, if I recall, he said um, that we could make the rhinos do the right thing. The president was making notes that talking then about we should go up to the Capitol, what's the best route to go to the Capitol. Did he give any indication of how he knew that the crowd was fired up or angry? He continued to reference being able to hear them outside. That same night, January 5th, Trump was legally advised against attacking Vice President Mike Pence in his speech. The next day, after Pence informed the former president that he would not be party to a coup, a visibly angered Trump decided once again to ignore his legal counsel by attacking Pence multiple times. A single scripted reference in the speech to Mike Pence became eight. A single scripted reference to rally goers marching to the Capitol became four, with President Trump ad-libbing that he would be joining the protesters at the Capitol. Added throughout his speech were references to fighting and the need for people to have courage and to be strong. The word peacefully was in the staff written script and used only once. Joining me now is Charles Coleman, J Charles Coleman Jr., civil rights attorney, former prosecutor and MSNBC legal analyst, and Jill Weinbanks, former assistant Watergate special prosecutor and co-host of the Sisters-in-Law podcast. And Jill, I'm going to start with you because you got the popcorn pin on. So if you wear a popcorn pin, Charles, keep that in mind next time you can go first. But I'm going to I have to ask you about, about this because there are a couple puzzles for me here. And one of the biggest ones is Mark Meadows. You know, Mark Meadows is not Ted Cruz. He's not like a faux intellectual who sees himself as, you know, some sort of, you know, 1776 era figure. He's just like a schmucky, you know, former congressman from North Carolina whose only sort of notable thing was that he was a birther during President Obama's uh, presidency and he was a, a tea partier. He, Cassidy Hutchinson testified about how he seemed to change in the days between December 14th and January 6th. Let me play, uh, let me play that. This is Cassidy Hutchinson. I perceived his goal with all of this to keep Trump in office. Um, you know, he had very seriously and deeply considered the allegations of voter fraud and but when he began acknowledging that maybe there wasn't enough voter fraud to overturn the election, you know, I, I 
witnessed him start to explore potential constitutional loopholes more extensively. You know, d during the Watergate hearings, Jill, I mean, the, the key were people like John Dean, who turned basically turned state's evidence. It wasn't a, a, you know, a criminal trial. But I am fascinated by Meadows. Are you? Because this is one person who, to me, is a puzzle. He's on the phone with some unknown person during the rally while Trump is out there speaking. We still don't know who that is. As Cassidy Hutchinson testifies, she was his top aide. He sort of turns from being one of the normals to being in on the conspiracy. What do you make of that? It's one of the strangest things because I have tried to talk to Trumpers and they don't have facts. He had the facts. And I think he's smart enough to have understood what was true and what was propaganda. And so it is hard to imagine that he isn't complicit in all of the crimes that were being committed. What would make him turn? It's what sucks in anybody to a conspiracy in the presence of the president. And I saw this in Watergate where um, one of our defendants was an outside lawyer who was only briefly involved, who had an impeccable record. But in the presence of the president and the top aides, he started doing things that I know he would have never done, but for the pressure of being in that environment. And the only thing I can think of is that Mark Meadows just simply lost his moral compass and was willing to do whatever it took to make Donald Trump happy, to let him have his way. I mean, he's the one who said, well, just let him go on and rant right now. He will turn over peacefully the reins of power, which, of course, he has never done. To this day, he hasn't done it. Maybe Mark Meadows actually believed that if they sort of treated him like a 12-year-old and let him rant and rave, that he would give up this crazy nonsense of staying in power by any means possible. You had loyal people like Rusty Bowers who said, I wanted him to win. I just didn't want to cheat to do it. So some people said the Constitution matters, my oath matters. Somehow Mark Meadows lost that and was willing to do John Dean got hooked into being part of the conspiracy. And then he woke up and went, what I'm doing is terrible. I'm going to cooperate and I'm going to tell the truth. I'm, first, I'm going to tell the president the whole truth. And then I'm going to tell the president I'm going to the prosecutors. And that's what he did. And that was a real break for us. You know, and Charles, except to, to the point of committing a felony, I mean, Mark Meadows got one of the million, you know, part of the, the 250 million scam money that Donald Trump raised off of the, the, the big steal, the big lie. So he got a little bit of money, but a million dollars isn't enough to go to prison for. He, he I, I, it is very hard for me to understand why he is resisting the subpoena, why he is refusing to talk, what could be in it for him? Because I know it ain't a million dollars to his pack. What, what do you think, just as a, just as a prosecutor, as a lawyer, what do you make of it? You know, Joy, the thing that I've been trying to rack my brain around this entire time is how President Trump or former President Trump is still able to influence as many people within the Republican Party and within his circle as he has been able to. He can't offer them anything. And right. so for me, it's baffling that these people still feel this endearing sense of loyalty to him, because if he were president and could offer them an executive pardon, for example, that might provide some incentive for them not to cooperate. But there's nothing that he can do for him, for them. He's a political pariah for all intents and purposes. And so 
just like you, I'm wondering what is it that you are offering or what is it that you believe that this man can offer you such that your loyalties lie with him and you're willing to jeopardize your own freedom by refusing to cooperate with the committee? I have no idea. I wish I had a better answer, but that is the million dollar question and, you know, literally the million dollar question in terms of why is this worth so much to so many people that they have decided that they're not going to cooperate with the committee? I have to ask you this because the Justice Department went after Bannon. They went after some people who refused to comply with the subpoenas. Bannon blinked. He suddenly said, whoa, 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 I'll cooperate. I'll come and testify live. I'll come and do a TV show for you. Just let me, don't prost me. And the judge said, no. <laughs> so, but it, I, I wonder what each of you think, and I'll start with you, Charles, on the DOJ not coming down that way on Meadows. What does that tell you? Because it makes no sense to me. Well, Joy, I think the American public has been trying to be as patient with Merrick Garling and the DOJ as possible. But I think the bigger question as pressure continues to mount on Merrick Garland is, what are you going to do and when are you going to do it? Particularly when you're talking about witnesses and people who are not President Trump. I can understand waiting until the committee drops its report, uh, its final report to decide and how you're going to deal with the referrals around President Trump. But with witnesses like Mark Meadows, that's what the question is. And there's a lot of pressure coming on a lot of different people and a lot of different groups. There's not only pressure on Merrick Garland and the DOJ, there's pressure on House Democrats to make sure that they're able to actually turn this into something come midterms. That's obviously a bigger conversation for down the road. But there's now pressure on the American people. What we saw today with respect to the uh, uh, different extremist groups and the information that we learned now puts pressure on the American electorate to decide what kind of country do we want to have. We've ignored the calls and the and the charges that we have seen in terms of this growing militancy around militias, around violence, around so many different things that after today's testimony can no longer be ignored. So this has put a lot of pressure on a lot of different people. Merrick Garland is probably Probably at the top of the list because people want to know what are you going to do about Mark Meadows, particularly with this question of executive privilege not being as as bulletproof yeah. as we once thought it. And if Pat Cipollone doesn't have executive privilege, he was White House counsel. How does Mark Meadows continue to be able to float out there? I don't get it. Charles Coleman, uh, Jill Weinbanks, thank you both. And don't go anywhere. Former Oath Keepers spokesman and January 6th committee witness Jason Van Tatenhove joins me next. We'll be right back. Hi, I'm Jonathan Capehart, and I'm excited to share some great news. Both The Saturday Show and The Sunday Show are available as a podcast. Every weekend, I look forward to bringing you the most important political news and the newsmakers who are creating policies that affect your life. For me, it's all about the conversation. That's when news is revealed and understanding begins. Search for Saturdays and Sundays with Jonathan Capehart and follow. everyone, it's Katie Fang. Did you know my weekly show on MSNBC is now available as a podcast? With my decades of experience as a trial lawyer, you'll get an insider's perspective on all things legal. At a time when politics and the law are inextricably intertwined, my guests and I break down what's next and why it matters, both inside and outside the courtroom. Search for The Katie Fang Show wherever you're listening and follow. Today's bombshell hearing offered real insight into the far-right extremist groups involved in the Capitol attack, featuring a former member of one of these groups, the Oath Keepers. 
Back in 2014, Jason von Tattenhove joined members of the anti-government militia organization to document their support of cattle rancher Cliven Bundy, who initiated an armed standoff with federal, with federal and state law enforcement over defaulted grazing fees. He would go on to work for the Oath Keepers as a national media director. Van Tattenhove said that the best illustration for what the Oath Keepers are happened on January 6th. And though he did get out, his fears remain. I do fear for this next election cycle because who knows what that might bring. If, if a president that's willing to try to instill and... and, and encourage to whip up a civil war amongst his followers using lies and deceit and snake oil. And regardless of the, the human impact, what else is he going to do if he gets elected again? All bets are off. Joining me now is Jason von Tattenhove, author of the forthcoming book, The Propagandist, Oath Keepers and the Perils of Extremism, which is out in February. Jason, thank you so much for being here. I really appreciate uh, you taking the time. Um, you, you were very eloquent today. And, you know, I, I can recall just reading the Denver Post article about you and saying, I grew up in Colorado. So I'm like, oh, I know what those I know where those places are. I, I know where this guy is from. And these are not communities that are extreme. They're conservative, you know, but they're not extreme. So how does a, a tattoo artist, an artist, a punk rock guy wind up with the wind up with the Oath Keepers? Well, you know, when when Bundy Ranch first kicked off, I knew that there was going to be a story there. And one of my my biggest influences in life as as a writer has been Hunter S. Thompson. And he had his breakout novel with the Hells Angels. And I thought this might be an opportunity for me to do that. Um, so I went and I, I covered the Bundy Ranch. I got embedded with Stuart Rhodes in his vehicle as he went down for the, the second part of that. Um, I was invited back to and, and given unprecedented access to the uh, the Sugar Pine Mine uh, standoff and then the White Hope Mine standoff. And um, at that point, my uh, my name got used um, on a press release, so that was the end of my day job. And uh, Stewart offered me a job um, as the national media director and uh, an associate editor for the website. So that's really what kind of kicked it off. And and I will say and 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 as you know, admit that I did get swept up in it for a bit. And, um, you know, part of why I'm speaking out is because I want to I want to communicate to other people that may have been swept up in similar rhetoric that there is an exit ramp. There's a way out. And, you know, for a while, I mean, you got so close to Stuart Rhodes. He lived in your basement, right? Like he actually lived lived with you when you got to know him that way. Yes. Did he show inklings of the megalomania? Um, let me let me play a little bit of him. This is Stuart Rhodes on December 12th uh, of 2020. Take a look. He needs to know from you that you are with him, that he does not do it now. While he is commander-in-chief, we're going to have to do it ourselves later in a much more desperate, much more bloody war. Let's get it on now while he is still the commander-in-chief. Was it always that megalomaniacal or was there something different about the organization early on? No, no. There's so the, we saw an evolution. Um, you know, they did start off much more like um, a, a constitutional book club or an educational outreach. But I think what Stewart found as he, he participated in these standoffs was that he got a whole lot of camera time 
And um, there was a lot of donations flowing in. And I think that really helped to cement, you know, I think during Bundy Ranch, during the week I was there, I overheard uh, between thirty dollars and $40,000 was raised in a week, um, of which, of course, only about $12,000 ever made it to the Bundy family. Um, so, you know, it was a way that fed his ego um, and, and, you know, got him in front of the cameras and got his message out. And um, so, yeah, I think I think that all plays a part of it now. Also, to 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 your earlier question, Stuart, I really don't think, you know, believes a lot of the stuff that he puts on in front of the camera. I think that there's kind of two Stuart Rhodes, you know, the Stuart Rhodes that lived in my basement at one time was was doing yoga classes in Whitefish, you know, while he was living with me. But there was certainly this other Stuart that that we see on the cameras and we see in, you know, on Infowars and such. And that's a, a really dangerous thing because um, he doesn't seem to care about uh, the repercussions of the, that messaging. We, we, I'm wondering if when you were around him, because you said that you broke with him because of some really anti-Semitic, you know, Holocaust denial and stuff like that. People like Steve Bannon, Michael Flynn, Richard Spencer, that type of person, Roger Stone, to your knowledge, I mean, you got out in 2016. Yeah. Did, you, did you ever see the Richard Spencers, that kind of person around him? Because we know that the Oath Keepers, a year after you were out already, did take part in the Unite the Right rally in Charlottesville. So they were getting involved in some really violent, ugly stuff. Were any of those people around when you were around him? Really, I had, I had begun to disengage. Um, there was one specific event that I referenced in my testimony today that led to my resignation. Um, you know, and it really was, you know, Richard Spencer, he, when he got punched in the face on camera, the Oath Keepers were providing security, but I've, I, I, I have never been a racist. I've never been anti-Semitic. My, my cousin is, is Jewish. Um, I have family members that are Jewish. Um, I'm openly queer. So, you know, there, again, there's a lot of things that just don't jive when, uh, you're off the camera. The cameras are turned off when it comes to Stuart Rhodes. Yeah. There are other employees that were, you know, gay couples. Yeah. Um, I, when we went out to Kentucky to cover the county clerk who wouldn't, uh, officiate the gay marriages, you know, the, the story I had wrote around that piece was completely, um, dismissed by Stuart, you know, heavily edited, because what it comes down to is the Oath Keepers really is just Stuart Rhodes. All of the messaging, all of the decisions, all of it, it's, it's Stuart Rhodes. Well, let me ask you this, because a lot of the people who have testified before the committee have talked about the threats they've received, the, 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 the threats to their, their, their families. Um, you, you were involved with some pretty bad guys, and all you've been out for a while, you've now testified publicly, you've told your story, you're writing a book about them. Have there been repercussions for you? No, but, you know, I just dealing with the, the realms that I dealt with, you know, I, 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 I gained a thick skin pretty quickly. And, you know, I've got safety precautions and a safety plan put in place for my children and, you know, been very, you know, vocal and communicating, like, how to be safe with this as as safe as we can be. You know, we have really good um, communication with local law enforcement, local government in the, the small mountain town that I live in. Um, so, you know, we've tried our best to do it. But, you know, I, I kind of just of the 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 thought process that if you're not getting regular death threats, you're not doing something right. And this is an important thing that we need to talk about as a nation this we're, we're in a very precarious time and um we we need to take action now we need to start speaking out i knew there would be a time where my story would need to come out yeah. and that time is now so 
Well, Jason, you started off wanting to be a journalist and you're you're doing that now with your book. I hope you will come back when your book comes out in February. Thank you, Jason Von Tatenow. I really appreciate you. Thank you. All right. Coming up next, how social media and online chat groups made organizing an insurrection much easier than it should ever have been. Stay with us. During today's hearing, the January 6th committee shared the concerns from a former Twitter employee about Donald Trump's use of the platform to specifically reach out to far-right extremist groups to act as his loyal foot soldiers, actions that would have led to the permanent suspension of any other user much sooner than Trump's account was ultimately shut down. My concern was that the former president for seemingly the first time was speaking directly to extremist organizations um, and giving them directives. It felt as if a mob was being organized. After this tweet on December 19th, again, it became clear not only were these individuals ready and willing, but the leader of their cause was asking them to join him. And you were concerned about the potential for this gathering becoming violent? Absolutely. Joining me now in person, Ben Collins, NBC senior, NBC News senior reporter, um, and the guy, the person that I like furiously text, what the hell, whenever crazy things happen. Um, Ben, it's so good to actually have you on set. Um, So when Trump sends out this tweet, this December 19, it's going to be wild tweet, the response was like immediate. Let me just read some of them from a 4chan post. Why don't we just kill them? Every last Democrat down to the last man, woman, and child. The average Democrat is a traitor. They do not care about election fraud. The punishment for treason is death. From a gab post, the the, Nazi platform. It's time for the day of the rope. White revolution is the only solution. We were talking about it in the break. They actually did bring a rope. Yeah, they actually brought a rope. Day of the rope, I, we want to make this clear. In white nationalist literature, day of the rope is the day everything changes. With the day the revolution starts, they kill journalists. They keep they go down the list. They kill everybody they think would be retributive for all of the harms that have been done since uh, basically Nazi Germany lost. It's basically what day of the rope is. Uh, so that's what they were planning on in some of those spaces. And you're right, in, the, in those days, the, remember this, this is like five days before Christmas. So yeah. people like people are not naturally like this in this in this mood, in this mode right now. It was incredibly virulently violent in these spaces on the Donald, which they talked about today as well, where this was all planned. They had more. Specific, and that's on Reddit, right? Yeah, it used to be on Reddit. They got kicked off of Reddit for being too violent. What are the odds of that? Yeah. So on the Donald, they had real plans. They talked about uh, they talked about this today in the hearing. But they talked about, uh, you know, uh, fortifying the uh, stuff underneath the Capitol, the tunnels underneath the Capitol. So, so people couldn't escape. That's what was going on in those spaces. So on 4chan, it was the, you know, the anti-Semitism, right. the, the racism, the, the, the violence. On the Donald, there was planning. And on Donald Trump's account, there was a guy at the very top saying, no, 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 keep going. Go through with this thing. Yeah. And just to show you all what, how far right media personalities responded to it. OK, let me just play a little quick mashup of that. Take a look. And now Donald Trump is calling on his supporters to descend on Washington, D.C., January 6th. He is now calling on we, the people, to take action and to show our numbers. We're going to only be saved by millions of Americans moving to Washington, occupying the entire area, if, if necessary, storming right into the Capitol. 
you better understand something, son. You better understand something. Red wave. Red wave. There's going to be a red wedding going down January 6th. Motherfucker, you better look outside. <laughs> you better look out January 6th. Kick that door open. Look down the street. There's going to be a million plus geeked up armed Americans. <laughs> so the social media platforms were all pretty much lit on fire by this tweet. Yes, absolutely. And by the way, we're just, we don't know who Salty Cracker is, no. but that is a very good example of how, like, down in the weeds, every little YouTube right. and MAGA account or whatever, they, they all knew. There was, everyone knew what he meant by that. It was, right. go there on the 6th. And that's what we heard in that testimony today, too, by Ayers, Stephen Ayers. He said, you know, I knew from there to go to the yeah. Capitol. And then when, he, when I was there, he said, go to the Capitol. Not just the ellipse, but go to the Capitol and I'll, I'll meet you there. This was unambiguous to every single extremist group and every single extremist wannabe who showed up on uh, on the ellipse on the 6th. Speaking of Stephen Ayers, I don't know if we have time to play this. This is Stephen Ayers talking about following Donald Trump. I was, you know, pretty hardcore into the social media, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. I followed, you know, President Trump, you know, on all of the websites. I was hanging on every word he was saying. Everything he was putting out, I was following it. I mean, if I was doing it, hundreds of thousands or millions of other people are, are doing it, or maybe even still doing it. Multiply him by like 10 million. Yeah. I mean, we, we've heard this over and over again. Uh, you know, Eamon, our colleague, did, did a, a story about a woman who died on the steps. Yep. Same thing. This person was just radicalized by the internet. And they just had time in their hands during the pandemic, and it, they just ended up here. And there's, like, I'm not saying there's no malice in that person's soul or something, but it was, it was, act, it was activated yeah. by what was happening in the two or three weeks before January 6th. And there's no way Donald Trump didn't know this. I think we, gotta, we have to keep saying this out loud. He brought in the five people in the world who thought this was actually happening. We thought there was, you know, the Nest thermostats were uh, rigging the election or something like that. Right. You don't happen upon those people. Those, th you find those people because yeah. those are the people who are the loudest on social media who are giving you an excuse to go through with this sort of thing. Yeah. Ben Collins, you're the best. Um, thank you very much. Really appreciate you being here. That is tonight's readout. But do not go anywhere. I'll be back in a moment with my friends for a recap of tonight's dramatic January 6th hearing. You don't want to miss it. Stay right there. Here on MSNBC, we are staying on top of several fast-moving stories. Today's news requires more facts. A new report finds the climate crisis is getting much worse. More context. We are seeing record numbers of people crossing into the United States just in the southern border. And more ground covered. The mission will continue to carry out regime change in the Gaza Strip. The world's never been harder to understand. That's why it's never been more important to try. MSNBC. Understand more.